Then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there have been famine in the land and for the next five years, there will be no plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, Lord of his entire household and ruler of all Egypt. Now hurry back to my father and say to him, this is what your son Joseph says. God has made me the Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not delay. You shall live in the region of Goshen and be near me, you, your children and your grandchildren, your flocks and herds and all you have. I will provide for you there because five years of famine are still to come. Otherwise, you and your household and all who belong to you will become destitute. You can see for yourselves, and so, men, and so can my brother Benjamin, that it is really I who am speaking to you. Tell my father about all the honor accorded me in Egypt and about everything you have seen, and bring my father down here quickly. Then he threw his arms around his brother Benjamin and wept, and Benjamin embraced him weeping, and he kissed all his brothers and wept over them. Afterward, his brothers talked with him. This is Genesis 45, 4 through 15. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Okay, have a seat. The greatest test of your character comes down to how you handle your success. Suffering and hardship grow your faith, and that's extremely important. But success reveals what's in your heart. Proverbs 27 says, The crucible is for silver and the furnace is for gold, but a man is tested by his praise. And that's what today's story is all about. After a very long and bumpy road, our character Joseph is finally at the top. Like God had promised him many, many years ago, he is now finally a great ruler. He's Pharaoh's right-hand man, he's in his late 30s, he's got a family of his own, he's respected. Everything that he prophesied about so far has come true, and there were seven years of abundant harvest, and now they're in year two of this famine that he prophesied about. And he, Joseph, is the man with the authority to manage all of the resources of the kingdom of Egypt. So how Joseph handles himself now now that he's in a position of power, it reveals what's really in his heart. It reveals who he actually is. Will his power corrupt him? Or will he stay true to the covenant that God made with his great-grandfather? And will he use his influence and wealth to bless all of the families of the earth like it was prophesied and promised long ago? Let's take that a step further, though, because if you were Joseph and if you were vindicated... Like finally, after years, decades even, of being mistreated and taken advantage of, how would you deal with those people? Those people now that you're the one in charge, those people who've mistreated you for these many years, how would you treat them? Remember, it was the Edomites who originally trafficked him to Egypt in the first place, and then Potiphar had bought him and enslaved him Potiphar's wife sexually harassed him repeatedly, and then when he wouldn't sleep with her, she framed him for rape. 
So between Potiphar and his wife, it's a pretty toxic work environment, if you ask me. This is crazy. And then while he's wrongfully imprisoned, Joseph ministers to Pharaoh's cupbearer and interprets his dream. But then after he's released, he completely forgets about Joseph and doesn't return the favor. But now things have completely changed. Joseph has their livelihood in his hands. Oh, how the turntables have turned. To quote Michael Scott. I don't quote Michael Scott often because I don't want to invite the comparison, but you know what I mean. So if the people who mistreated Joseph were going to survive the seven years of famine, it would only be if Joseph had mercy on them. But of course, I don't think that's the people who hurt him the most. All of those others were essentially strangers who didn't really care about him in the first place. His brothers were his family. And his brothers were motivated by jealousy and hate. They were the ones who willfully threw him to the wolves and put him in harm's way. And the ultimate test of Joseph's heart comes when he's confronted with an opportunity to either get revenge, get even, make them pay, or to show them mercy and grace instead. And I first of all just want to say, I know that family wounds, they hurt different, don't they, than strangers or friends. They affect you more deeply than other relational brokenness. And I know that there are many of you here in the room right now who can relate to this. You're estranged from someone who you love, someone in your family, your mother, your father, or another close relative. And the first thing that I would say to that is we are just sympathetic. We empathize with you. We're sorry. That's not how it's supposed to be. But there is still hope, and this story is evidence and proof of that. There is still hope that God is able to overcome evil with good. Even situations that seem unredeemable, they are not when it comes to what God is capable of doing. Let's see how the story unfolds. In chapter 42, uh, 10 of Joseph's brothers, they come down to Egypt because they're out of food. Now, because of Joseph's like, prophetic wisdom and because of his great leadership administration, he spent nine years faithfully stewarding the resources of Egypt. And so now, in year two of the famine, Egypt is the only place where you can buy food. So Jacob tells his sons, hey, you guys got to go strike a deal with the Egyptians or something if we're going to survive this famine. And so they do. They, they go to Egypt and they appear before Joseph and they have no idea who he is. But the first thing they do is they bow down to him, which is a profound full circle moment. For them, that's just what you do in the ancient world when you need favor from the second most powerful person alive. But what's going on is actually much, much more than that. Joseph recognizes them immediately and that this is a full circle moment, that God is actually fulfilling the promise that he made to him 20 years in the making. So he's got to be really quick on his feet. Imagine if that were you, your brothers, your long lost brothers, the ones who sold you into slavery. They suddenly appear in your life again and they don't recognize who you are. So he's thinking quick on his feet and here's what he does. He chooses to keep his identity a secret but he wants to find out about his dad and his younger brother, Benjamin, who didn't make the trip. And so he basically asks his brothers about their family, and they tell him a story. But of course, if you're Joseph, man, these guys have no credibility with you whatsoever, so you don't know if they're telling you the truth. So what does Joseph do? He decides to test them. He decides to test them. And the test is basically about this. Have my brothers, have they changed since they threw me to the wolves 20 years ago? Have they changed? Or are they the same old guys? He wants to know if they've been transformed 
And when it comes to the people that you love, the ones that you're estranged from, that's, that's the big question. How can I trust them again? How can I be reconciled to them? Is that even possible? Or will they just abuse me all over again? Will all of that toxic dysfunction that existed before, will it still just creep back into our relationship? Has anything changed? Have they been transformed? That's the question. Now, despite the cynicism of our culture on this topic, people can change. And people do change. People are transformed. For example, just a couple of weeks ago, I was hanging out with some good friends, that um, husband and wife couple, and this man had lived many, many years, a completely double life. He was going to church, bringing his family, and then supporting all of these Christian ministries. But behind the scenes, he was also cheating on his wife repeatedly for decades. And it came out all at once in this very destructive, traumatizing way to the whole family, obviously. But God did something radical in his life. And now, many years afterwards, they have an incredible marriage. She is a picture of radical forgiveness that I personally don't even have the tools to wrap my head around. But he is also a picture of faithfulness. And it's an amazing thing to see. God redeem and bring back to life relationships that seem dead. God is capable of doing that. But Joseph needs to find out if they've matured and grown or if they're just like the same old guys. So essentially, what Joseph does is he sets up this test. He asks, he asks them to prove it. Prove that you're telling me the truth. You say you have another brother, a younger brother. Well, prove it. Bring him here to me. And now that is the thing that sort of sets his test in motion. And Joseph, again, he's filled with prophetic wisdom and all of that. He's got a whole like elaborate multi-phase plan to test to see if his brothers are legit. But for Joseph's part, already, Joseph has proven his character and passed his test. What he does is profound. Check this out. First of all, he resists the urge to get even. He resists the urge to get even. Our culture loves the poetic justice of revenge. And if you don't believe me, there's a whole subgenre of movies called revenge fantasies where the bad guy is just like beaten mercilessly for all of the evil that he's done. Just like every single Bond movie seems to have a theme like that in it or a lot of like other action thrillers and stuff like that. Why do we like that? If this story was written from our culture, Joseph, when he saw his brothers, would strip them of their clothes and throw them into a pit for a few years, right? And he'd be justified, and he had all of the power that he needed in that situation to do whatever he'd like. But that's not at all what Joseph does. Instead, this story is actually just about, not written from Western culture, it's actually much a part of God's story of redemption. So not only does he resist the urge to get even, it's even better than that. Check this out. Before his brothers even pass their test, Joseph decides to bless them. Before they prove that they've changed, he's already blessing them. He saves their lives. He sends them back to Canaan with grain. And in fairness, they try to pay for it, but he slips the, their silver back into their stuff before they leave. So if you've ever been betrayed by someone you love, you can appreciate how selfless and how Christ-like this decision was. Before Joseph had any evidence that his brothers were different men, he's already rescuing them from the famine, and he's already being generous with them. How is that possible? How is it possible that he has this strength of soul? I think the simple answer to that is that Joseph has the heart of God who loves his enemies. I think that's pretty plain and simple. But also all along the story so far, God has already been blessing people who are rebelling against him. So that is God's character. We know that from the story of Genesis. But this is the first real example of a human loving in the same way that God loves. 
And that's the kind of people we want to be, who pick up on the theme of how God likes to love people, even when they rebel, even when they hurt, even when they do wrong, even when they do evil, God is still there to love. And we want to be like that as well. And, that, and Joseph is like the first real example of that in the scriptures. Now, how was he able to do it? That's a different question. Well, first of all, he's filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. Chapter 41, verse 38 tells us that. But remember, he's also been formed through 20 years of obscurity, suffering, and now success. So we don't know about the brothers yet, but Joseph has been transformed. And he's proven that through his actions. Number one, he's got a purified paradigm of leadership. He's got a, pur- uh, a purified paradigm of leadership. At 17, he couldn't get past the part of his dream where his brothers were bowing down to him. To him, that was the point of the dream. My brothers are going to bow down to me. So at that time when he's 17, leadership is just about him being elevated and him getting status. But now, look how different his paradigm is. His paradigm is purified. The point of the dream was never to show up his brothers or to gain status above them. The point is that God wants to use his status use his authority, use his position of power to save countless lives, including his own family. And that's exactly the pattern that we see begin to unfold throughout the scripture through many other people like Joseph. And who else leads like that? Let's look at Matthew chapter 20, verse 25. It says this, Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must become your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Joseph is an early pioneer of this Jesus way of leadership. Aren't you glad that Jesus doesn't lead like some other leader from our culture? Where would you and I be if Jesus just followed the same old model laid out by the thought leaders of our day? I think we'd be without hope, we'd be without salvation, but what we have instead is a king who's willing to rescue and save us, who's willing to serve, willing to give his life as a ransom. Later in in Philippians 2, Paul explains how this kind of leadership works. He says that although he's equal with God, Jesus empties himself and uses his power not to dominate, but to serve and to bless and to care for and to protect. So that vocation of serving humanity leads him finally and ultimately to the cross where he's obedient to death and that's where his true power is revealed. And this is the sort of uh, paradox, if you will, around this concept is that that is not an expression of weakness, it's an expression of power. And Joseph is an early pioneer of the Jesus way. No one else in Joseph's world was leading like this. He didn't pick this up from his boss at Potiphar's house. He's being led by the Spirit. He's pioneering a new way of seeing status and positions of power. And he's seeing a different path. And he has the courage to take that path, even though no one in the history of his life has shown him that way. Case in point, he's confronted with the perfect setup for his ultimate revenge fantasy. His brothers are there bowing down before him and he's got all of the might of the empire of Egypt and instead of that revenge fantasy and taking revenge, instead he pours out blessing. He pours out mercy and generosity instead. This is 
strikingly beautiful, and I hope you see it. Just like with Jesus, Joseph's decision to bless his enemy, it's not, it's actually carries more power than a decision to lord it over them. So you see what I mean? His decision to bless carries more power than his uh, decision to lord it over them. Payback, getting even, revenge, that's weakness, according to the language of the scripture. It's weak. We want to be the kinds of people who see a path forward, a different path of God's plan to redeem and to save, and then we want to be making a conscious, courageous decision to take that path, even though it's upstream or across the grain from our culture and from the way our world likes to do things. It takes real spiritual discernment. It takes real wisdom. Of course, we can look back on Joseph's story now, and we can make sense of it, but for him, he's just confronted with this reality. What am I supposed to do about my brothers? And his knee-jerk response is to bless them. Like we've been saying throughout this whole study on Joseph, his character, this character that Joseph has, it did not come easily. This was not like a download of a software update or something like that. That's not how character transformation works. He was formed through years and years of trials and tests. Oswald Sanders, in his fantastic book called Spiritual Leadership, if you're if you're interested in a book on Christian leadership, I still recommend this one is my favorite as of right now. He says this, Often truly authoritative leadership falls on someone who years earlier sought to practice the discipline of seeking first the kingdom of God. And then as that person matures, God confirms a leadership role and the spirit of God goes to work through him. I love that. So, and I think he's on to something. My challenge to you, regardless of where your discipleship journey is taking you, but especially if you want to be entrusted with great spiritual leadership, Dare to take the path of a servant. It will not look like other paradigms of leadership that you've seen and have been modeled to you. But maybe you've had the gift of someone in your life, a wise, mature Jesus follower like Joseph, who takes the path of a servant. Now, if you need more encouragement on this, check out James 4. James 4 says this, humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up. And there's a lot more where that came from. There's like five other verses I listed there. They all say essentially the same thing. So that's number one. He resists the urge to get even. But also, I think Joseph's actions demonstrate, they prove that he's already forgiven his brothers years ago. Here's what I mean by that. If Joseph still had like bitterness and unforgiveness in his heart, first of all, according to Matthew 6, Jesus' teaching on prayer He wouldn't be filled with the Spirit. He wouldn't have divine wisdom. I think his prayers would be hindered, and I think he'd be a pretty unhappy guy. But second of all, it's all happening so fast for him. His brothers are bowing down to him, and they're coming into his presence after 20 years of complete absence, and his knee-jerk response is to extend mercy and grace. My hunch is that he wouldn't be able to actually extend grace to them without having first forgiven them. We cannot like will the good of another while we're still resenting them or harboring unforgiveness towards them. Are you guys with me on that? Okay. So you might be thinking, well, then how does he forgive his brothers? How could he possibly forgive his brothers? They haven't apologized. They haven't demonstrated a change of heart. They haven't even come down to the table of forgiveness or anything like that. True. But there is a difference between forgiveness and reconciliation. Forgiveness is the personal process that an individual takes to release and let go of feelings of anger towards someone who's hurt you or wronged you. Reconciliation 
is the process of restoring a broken relationship to a place of harmony and trust. See, both of these things are at the center of God's heart. God wants to Uh, wants us to forgive each other. He wants us to reconcile with people that we're estranged from. But reconciliation requires both people in the relationship. For there to be harmony, for there to be trust restored, people have to come to the table and work it out and make peace. But forgiveness is something that I can do regardless of an apology, regardless of a change of heart, or even contact with the other person. And for many of you who are estranged to loved ones right now, you you may not even have the option of sitting down with them to reconcile. They may not come to the table or or whatever, and that's tragic. Let's pray for that opportunity. But don't let that stop you from extending forgiveness to that person. Release them from the hurt that they've caused you. Tell God that you forgive them. And of course, this can be an extremely difficult step to take. I do not want to minimize it. I know, again, many of you are in very tricky relational conflict right now, and so I would never want to minimize what you're walking through. But notice what it says in Ephesians 4. It says, be kind and compassionate towards one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. So when we forgive, we're not denying that somebody hurt us, and we're not denying the fact that we may still be hurting. We're not saying that everything is fine now, everything's perfect. What we're saying is, I know that God has forgiven me, and I know that the work of Christ on the cross is also for this person who hurt me. And we're asking that the Lord would cover the sins of one another, each other, the person who harmed us, with the blood of Christ, would be applied to that person's sin. And then we're asking God, the perfect judge, God, you deal with them how you want to deal with them, but I will no longer harbor resentment and anger. I will actually release them. And again, I'm not pretending like this is an easy step for some of us to take. I I get that this can be really, really tricky, but I can say that I have seen in countless people's lives Just such a freeing and healing feeling that comes from releasing a burden and releasing resentment through forgiveness. I've seen it happen in an instant where people's lives are like completely changed. The stress that they're carrying in their body, the countenance that they have with them, and just the overall sadness that they carry from having broken relationships be like immediately changed. In fact, recently I was meeting with a man and as soon as he was done forgiving his ex, it was a really tricky, messy situation. He was able to then pray and connect with God in ways that he hadn't done, he told me later, for years. I haven't talked to God like that for years. And there is something to be said if you study Matthew chapter six that a lack of forgiveness results in the hindrance of our prayers. And so we, we wanna be the kinds of people who are, are like, our, 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 our prayers aren't hindered, our joy is not hindered, our life with God is not hindered, and so as God in Christ has forgiven us, we want to extend forgiveness to others. Again, this is a freeing hell, uh, step, this is a healing step, um, so I encourage you, I challenge you really to, to, to forgive one another, but again, like I said, forgiveness does not equal reconciliation. So this is the big question, going back to our story one more time. If Joseph has already forgiven his brothers, then why is he putting them through this elaborate test before he reveals his true identity? Because the test is not about forgiveness. He's already done that. He's already blessing him. He's already passed his test. The, the, The test is actually about reconciliation. The test will reveal whether or not Joseph can open his heart 
to trust his brothers again. Remember, the scriptures teach that as far as it depends on you, you be at peace with everyone. And Joseph wants to make peace with his brothers, but he's just not sure if that's possible yet. But I love that even though he doesn't, he's not sure if it's possible, and even after everything that he's been through, he's still willing to work it out and to make peace. I love that sentiment, and I love that attitude because I feel in my spirit a deep sadness when people in our culture internalize the lie that people never change. I don't know where this came from necessarily, but I think it's from the enemy. It creates hopelessness and despair that once a relationship is broken, that's it. It's over. And I get that it's like a defense mechanism to protect ourselves from being hurt again, and I get all of that. But lies like that, they kill the reconciliation process before it even starts. See, Joseph had no way of knowing that his brothers had changed, but he was willing to come to the table of reconciliation anyways. I was talking with a friend this week who's uh, been on a really complicated reconciliation path with his family, and it's just like, it's not going well. His parents and his siblings just won't acknowledge the hurt or the dysfunction that they caused him growing up, and it's just kind of all on repeat, and it's happening all again. And as he was sharing this to me, I just like, broke out in prayer. My, my, my thought was this, like, man, reconciliation's hard, and right now it's on pause. Like, it's on pause. It's stalled out because we, we can't make any progress. We can't control the other person. So they're not willing to change. They're not willing to accept fault and responsibility. So the reconciliation is paused. But it's not over. It's not over. It's still possible for God to do something miraculous and something new. See, we believe God for all kinds of miracles, like you and your friends entering the family of God. I just prayed uh, for someone right before the gathering that the Lord would heal her neck. We pray for God to do all kinds of miraculous healings, and he does. And I believe that emotional healing and a change of a heart is another kind of healing, another kind of miracle that God wants to do. So it's maybe paused, it's maybe stalled out, but it's not over, keep hope alive. Laura Davis, in her fantastic book, I Thought We Never Speak Again, which if you're gonna read anything on reconciliation, read this book, it's fantastic. I Thought We Never Speak Again. She writes this, with human relationships, nothing is ever final. We cannot be sure how things will end until both people are dead. Oh, okay. It's very frank, very direct, this book. There are always surprises, unexpected twists, moments of grace, and at times, unfathomable tragedies. If we approach reconciliation with an intention to stay open and to see what is possible, there are few limits to what, what might happen. I love that. Isn't that good? So keep praying that God will make, the reconcilia- make reconciliation possible. So here's how it finally plays out with Joseph's brothers, and this is how we end today. The brothers, they come back later with Benjamin, and they bow down to him for a second time. They negotiate some more grain and all of that. And then finally, after all that, Joseph invites them over to his house for dinner. And they still don't know who Joseph is. He's managed to conceal his identity, but their test is still like very active. It's still going. So then at the end of all of that, Joseph sends them back to Canaan and he sneaks their silver back into their stuff like he did last time. However, unlike last time, he does something else. He plants evidence. He puts a silver cup, one of his own silver cups into Benjamin's stuff as a trap. He was entrapping them. And then he sends them on their way back to Canaan. 
And then they go out a little ways. And again, uh, Joseph just set up this whole thing. He sends one of his officials out to arrest them. And then Joseph specifically tells them to use this phrase with them as they're arresting them. He says, why would you repay evil for good? Now, that's a play on words that should, like, make sense to you if you've been around during our series in Genesis because our working definition of redemption and redemption history comes from Genesis 50 where God overcomes evil with good. So when God's making things right and when God does his thing and when God is working through humanity's evil, what he's doing is he's overcoming evil and rebellion and he's achieving his good result in its place. And by the way, God is still in that kind of business. He's still doing that. He's still overcoming evil with good. So in other words, what Joseph is doing is he's accusing his brothers of doing the opposite of what God does, undoing the good that's been done to them by doing evil instead. Now, they're actually not guilty of the crime that they're accused of. It was all just a trap. But let's be honest, that's the kind of stuff that they've been up to. Joseph knows it. The brothers know it. And so that's what it was all about. So they are forced to head back to Joseph's palace, but they bow down to him for a third time. See, prophetic dreams really do come true. Like Disney had it half right, right? Prophetic dreams really come true. They didn't get the prophetic part, but they got part of it. The Bible gets it fully right, okay? The Bible says what actually happened. So Joseph, knowing full well what this dilemma that he's creating for his brothers, um, he's saying, hey, listen, Uh, you guys are all free to go. Everyone can go home except for the one who took my silver cup. He's going to remain in Egypt with me as my slave. So the fact that that cup was planted in Benjamin's stuff is an even bigger problem because now that Jacob, everyone's father, thinks that Joseph is dead, then Benjamin is the new favorite son. This guy just can't learn his lesson like, Having a favorite child is a terrible idea. If you are parents of multiple children, please have more sense than Jacob. This is ridiculous. But now Benjamin's the favorite son, and everyone knew that. And if they returned uh, home without Benjamin, it would literally kill Jacob. He's an old man, and Benjamin was essentially keeping him alive. So this is like the final bit of their test, and the stage is really set for Joseph to know who his brothers really are. And Judah... Judah, the brother whose idea it was to sell Joseph in the first place, he steps forward and he makes an appeal to Joseph. He says, listen, I wish I could tell you that we're innocent, but how can we defend ourselves? You, you caught us red-handed. I mean, none of us grabbed the cup, but you found it. And, and so, in other words, he's just facing facts. They've gotten away with stuff before, but they're not getting out of this. And so he's just facing those facts. And then he says, but I beg you, Benjamin's my dad's favorite son. If I return home without him, it'll kill him. So please, instead, take me as your slave and send my brother home free. So Judah is not the same man he was 20 years ago. Notice the paradox and poetic like beauty of it. Before... He was willing to sell his brother into slavery because he was jealous. But now he's willing to sell himself into slavery to save his brother out of love for his dad. This is a complete turnaround and a complete change of heart. 
I see at least five or six things that that represent the change of heart. First of all, the brothers, they used to be prideful, motivated by hate and jealousy. Pride is the core emotion at the center of all of that. But now they're humble. They're admitting fault, even though they're innocent. They used to be jealous of the favorite son, but now they're fighting to protect the favorite son. They used to resent their father for having a favorite, but now they have genuine concern for his well-being. They used to lie and deceive, but now they're honest. Now they're vulnerable. Right? They used to have this really intense sibling rivalry, but now they're sticking together. They're not pointing fingers at each other, but they're actually caring for one another. And before, they're willing to mistreat their brother horribly, but now they're willing to accept unfair treatment in order to rescue their brother. So this is a complete and total change and transformation. They're unrecognizable from the men they were 20 years ago. And listen, this is the gift of God's tests. We're given another chance. We do not have to be defined by the weak character and poor decisions of our past. And for many of us, our youth was filled with all kinds of poor decisions. But see, God is giving us multiple opportunities to turn to him and to learn the lesson. And God is forming us through our obscurity, through our suffering, through our trials through our successes even, to make us wise and mature and whole disciples. And then there's actually something else that's going on, which I'm sure you picked up. That Judah is clearly foreshadowing Jesus. Remember, Judah offers to take Benjamin's place in judgment. That's a pretty wild thing. But Jesus actually takes our place in judgment. So in the end, it all kind of works out for Judah and for Benjamin. But Jesus, he was the actual substitute. He actually went to the cross and died in my place. Now, it's no surprise to me, and it shouldn't be to any of us, that Jesus actually comes from the tribe of Judah, we're told in the scriptures. And again, all of this came about because Joseph was able or was willing to make peace. And because he was, he was, because he was willing to make peace, because, expressly because he, he kept his heart open to the possibility of reconciliation, he was then able to see how God transformed his brother's hearts too. It wasn't just him who had been transformed, his brothers had been transformed too. So the lesson for us is that when we're open to the possibility of re- reconciliation, you're then able to see God's power manifest in, in people that you may be estranged from. And in some cases, you can actually regain the friendship. You can actually regain the relationship. And this is Judah's story. This is Joseph's story. This is the brothers. And after Judah offers himself to become a slave on Benjamin's behalf, Joseph can't handle it any longer. He's held it together this whole time. And then this is what happens at the end of our chapter today. He said to his brothers, come close to me. And when they had done so, he said, I'm your brother Joseph the one you sold into Egypt. Notice that he had called them to come in close. I can't help but notice that he's there and he's got the power to enslave them, to imprison them, or worse. But instead of taking his position of power to harm them, to get even, he says, do not be distressed. Don't be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. 
So you guys thought you were selling me. You thought that this was all about our little sibling rivalry, but God had a much bigger plan that he was working out, and it was actually him who sent me here to save you and to save countless lives. This is an incredible posture and attitude that I think we ought to have as well. And then this is what happens at the very end, right? They threw their arms around one another. He, he held Benjamin and he wept and Benjamin embraced him. And then he kissed all of his brothers and wept over them. And afterward, his brothers talked with him. So this is real reconciliation that happens as a result of these tests and all of this working out just according to God's plan. What we didn't read, but I think is very powerful, is that Joseph gives each of his brothers a set of clothes, a new set of clothes, but he gives Benjamin five sets of clothes, and he also gives him 300 pieces of silver. I want you to notice something. Joseph's gifts are so specific, not by accident. 20 years prior, his brothers took his clothes and sold him for 30 pieces of silver. Now Joseph is doing the opposite. He's giving them clothes and he's giving them 10 times as much silver as he was sold for. This is what real redemption is all about. What the scripture says in Romans 12, do not repay, repay anyone evil for evil, but overcome evil with good. So instead of getting what they deserve, Joseph gave them blessing instead. He gave them grace instead. And the same is true when it comes to the cross and the ministry and the vocation of Jesus. He was our ransom. Instead of getting what we deserved in our sin against God, he repays us with grace, 10x grace. He gives us grace upon grace, the scripture says. And this is the hope of, that we have in the Lord Jesus. And then this is the pattern that we then follow. We have been extended grace. We have been forgiven. So therefore, we extend forgiveness and we extend reconciliation. Whenever possible, we give grace. We bless when others are, when they wrong us. So here's just a couple of reflections as we close. The first one is just very simple, is that sometimes we're in a period of trial and suffering for a really long period of time. And sometimes God's promises, they just take time. But as with Joseph, I just want to challenge you, don't stop believing in God's promise. How many times do you think he thought about that dream he had when he was 17? And now all this time later, just going like, what was that? Did I hear wrong? Was God being real with me? Can I even trust him? And then all at once, it becomes really clear what God was doing all along. He's using all of Joseph's gifts to be a blessing, to save countless lives. That's our vocation too. Sometimes God's promises don't, sometimes God's promises take time, but don't stop believing because he will answer, like the scriptures say in 1 Peter, in due time. Second thought for your reflection is what about your actions? What about your life? Do your actions prove that you're being transformed to become more like Jesus? Remember, Joseph and his brothers, they're really, really difficult seasons of trials and suffering and success. 
tested their faith. It revealed who they really were. So what are your actions revealing what's in your heart, the character of your heart? What's, what's really going on there? The invitation is to, to, is to go the, the opposite way, is to go the Jesus way, not the way of the world. And then the third question for your reflection is just this. If you're experiencing success and blessing, amazing. Praise the Lord. But how does God want you to use your position of power in order to bless others, in order to save many lives? That's the question for us. And particularly when it comes to being a community here in Central Oregon, you know, you may not be rich by your neighbor's standards or by your friend's standards, but you are affluent. Uh, many of us, most of us, if not all of us in this room are affluent by the world's standards. And so this message needs to hit us in a way that we actually are willing to give of what we have been freely given in order to care for and in order to bless those who are less fortunate. And then the fourth and, uh, fourth and fifth question here, just as we close, is who is it that you need to forgive? And who is it that you need to reconcile with? I've been doing this a while. I know as soon as I brought up the concept of forgiveness and reconciliation, it was gonna start hitting a little bit differently with some of you. Because let's be honest, so many of us have really twisted and broken relationships with people that we love, and it's often family the ones who hurt the most. And again, you can't control someone's actions. You don't have to admit that what they've done for you, what they've done to you hasn't hurt. You can be honest about that, all of that. And you can't force reconciliation. It's just not how it works. Both people need to be ready for that. Both people need to come to the table. But nothing's stopping you from offering that person forgiveness. Even if you don't have contact with them. Even if they're not even looking for forgiveness. They're not offering you an apology. You can still make that decision in your heart to forgive. And my hope is that you do because there's so much blessing and there's so much reward and there's so much hope that comes once we do. And in Joseph's case, you get this beautiful example of because his heart remained open, he got to see how God was transforming in his whole family all along. So who is the Lord asking you or inviting you to forgive? who do you need to reconcile with? Let's stand and let's pray together. Father, we just want to say thank you, first of all, that you lead in a completely different way. The way that you become king is not by dominating your enemies, it's by loving and serving your enemies. It's by becoming uh, a, a ransom for your enemies, for, for me, Lord, and for us. And we just want to say thank you that that's our reality. That because you were willing to die in our place or take my place in judgment, I am completely forgiven and I am absolved of my sin. I'm forgiven of my sin and you have dealt with that for me. And so I praise your name and thank you for that, Lord. And we do as your people. And Lord, we wanna be the people who take the Jesus way, who follow in the way of Jesus. And Lord, some of us, maybe we don't have a big position of power right now. Some of us do, but many of us do not. But we do have influence. 
we have been given some things. And so God, we, we, we pray that you would use those things that we do have. And would you accomplish your good redeeming work through it? So you, you can do that. We, we cannot, but you can. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to forgive. For those of you who have a very clear picture in your mind of who you need to forgive and it's felt impossible notice the Lord's compassion he's not angry with you he doesn't resent you he understands now I just want you to be reminded of that reality that God in Christ has forgiven us and the blood of Christ is for that person too so if you can if you feel like you're able to do this today I encourage you to just say that you forgive them say God I forgive them would your blood cover over them would your, would your work on the cross, would it be for their life too? Recognize he's the judge. He, he can do with them what, what he wants to. He's capable of handling all of that. But for you, you don't have to hold on to resentment and anger anymore. You can let that go. And I just pray in the name of Jesus for you that you are able to do that. You are able to release people from the ways that they've hurt you. And I pray that you would be rewarded in return for a, restore, a restoration of joy, even repaired relationship and reconciliation. Lord, I pray that you would resurrect hope in the lives of my friends here, that we would believe in the scripture, what you have said is possible and what we have seen is possible through the life of Joseph. Would we see that in our own lives with our own relationships? It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen.